have you ever been asked to do something that you thought at the time you couldn't do? Maybe it was a, a parent or a boss or, or, or somebody said, hey, let's do this. And you thought, there's no way. There's no way I can, I can do that. Or and maybe it wasn't just that you couldn't do it, but maybe it was like, like, it's not just that I can't do it, but that can't be done. There's no way for us to accomplish that or for me to accomplish that. Uh, back in the day when we were still meeting uh, down in the west end of town, the Kawasaki building, there was a couple that was attending, and they came to me one day, and they said, we want to run a marathon. Do you want to do it with us? <laughs> no. Uh, no, but if you're doing it, well, maybe I'll, I'll try. Maybe that'll help keep me accountable. And I, I remember the first day uh, we, we made this schedule and this plan, and we went to the Y, and we hopped up on the treadmills. I could not do a 5K, which is like the 3.1 or 2 miles. I could not do I had to stop I don't know how many times. I could not even just jog that whole time without having to stop and, and walk. And, and I remember being on there and thinking, there's no way. Like this, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to do 26.2 uh, miles. Now, there's a hint there because uh, I know that a marathon is 26.2 miles because I ran it and finished it. Uh, couldn't do that now, <laughs> but I did it. You only have to do it one time, right, to say, to say that you've done it. I, uh, I could probably do it again. I, no, I probably, could. I probably, could. <laughs> probably couldn't. But I did it once, and that was good. I got the sticker, I put it on the car, and then we sold the car. So that's, uh, that's probably good. Maybe you, maybe you felt that way, like, you know, you're, you're going to start a business. And you, I've never done that before. I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do it. Uh, I, I just, I, ca I can't do it. Um, maybe for you, it's like, like I, I know I need to be healthier you know, I need to eat healthier. I need to get some exercise. I need to, I got, at, at my age, I can say that now, uh, I, it's like mobility, like just keeping your joints working like they're supposed to so that you can continue to, to move. And, and you think, oh, I can't, I can't do that. And, and maybe you're in that stage of life where you're like, you're ready to have a child, but you just don't know, like, am I going to have the money? Are we going to be able to do it? Like, how am I going to be as a parent? Maybe you're struggling with that. Maybe you've been trying and it hasn't worked. And you're like, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. Or, or you just want to buy like your dream car, your dream house. And, and you're at that stage where that, that seems like a huge, huge dream way far off. You think it'll never happen. I'll never be able to do that. I, I think that the vast majority of incredible things that are achieved, they started with apprehension. All the great and incredible things that, that maybe you've done in your life, the things that you thought you couldn't ever do, or the things just in the world that we think, oh, I'll never be able to accomplish that, they all started with this sense of apprehension. Like, I don't know if I have the tools, I don't know if the ability, the time, the, the know-how. And there's this, there's this pullback right at the very beginning, before you even take that first step, there's like all these questions about, is it going to, like, will it happen? Will it work? Could I do it. Nothing that has ever been worth it began without struggle and doubt and, and fear. And you've probably heard it, heard it said before, if you're on social media, you've seen the memes before that 
failure is not about falling down. It's, it's about refusing to get back up. And so we all have that moment where I don't know if we can do it. I don't know if I can make it happen. I don't know if we'll, if we'll get there. If I'm honest with you, we're, we're, we're a week. We're a week and two days from closing. And, and there have been multiple times now where I've thought, like, there's a, still a lot of things that could go wrong. Like, oh, man, is it going to happen? There's this apprehension there. I think that's just a part of life that we, that we deal with in lots of ways. We're, we're going to look today at Mark chapter 6 in, in a way that um, Jesus' disciples fell, like they, they kind of failed to pass this particular test. But, but then what we see is that through their fear, and, and even I think we're going to find out that there was some greed going on there, they continued to learn. They continued to learn to trust God, and then, of course, eventually, um, they changed the, the world. Now, ultimately, they, they learned to trust God with not just their lives through this process, but with the things that they truly loved, the things that they were really holding on to, that you couldn't really see on the surface, but you noticed down deep underneath. And so, um, we're just going to jump into Mark chapter 6 this morning. Verse 30, and we're going to go through this kind of verse, verse by verse. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him that they had uh, all that they had done and, and taught. Now, if you were just reading Mark chapter 6 and you came to verse 30, my guess is that you'd probably just read right past it and keep going. Um, and, and you might think, okay, they, they came back to Jesus and they told him all that they did. Like, that's like no big deal. Like, that verse seems... Like, not a big issue at all. But um, if you did skim past verse 30, if you, if you did just kind of move past it without thinking much about it, you would miss a huge part of what comes after this verse in the text. Like if you didn't stop to think about wh where did they return from and why were they telling him? What was important about the reason they were telling him all the things that they had done and, and taught, if you couldn't take a second to process that, you'd miss a whole lot of what's going to come in the next several verses. See, Mark with verse 30, he's setting the stage, and if you don't know about what happened earlier between Jesus and his disciples, about how Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples to preach repentance and heal the sick and cast out demons, well, then you'd lose a lot of what is going to happen in the next part of this story. And as we get into the next few verses, you're going to, you're probably, if you've been in church at all in your life, you're, you're going to know about the story we're going to read in Mark 6. But if you don't stop to look at this verse, you're, you're going to miss a whole lot of what's happening under the surface in that, in that story. And, and so my guess is that as we look at this, this, this very familiar story, you're going to see it in a different way uh, this, this morning. Mark says that um, earlier in the chapter, Mark says that, he, that Jesus gave his disciples authority. So there was this kind of ceremony, and it wasn't real big, and it wasn't out in public, but there was this moment where Jesus gives his disciples authority to cast out demons. He instructs them in how they're to trust God for the things that they would need on this journey that they're going to eventually return from in, in verse 30. 
And then he lays out his expectations for how they should act while they're on this journey. And then, then, then Mark says he sends them out two by two. He sends them out in pairs, and they go off in different directions. And, and, in, and in verse 30 then, th- th- this happens in um, Mark 7 to 13, or uh, Mark 6, verses 7 to 13, where Jesus sends out his disciples two by two. And then in verse 30, Mark says, okay, they've returned from that journey. They've returned from their task, and they're eager to give their report to Jesus about what's going on. And so here's what happens next, verse 31. Uh, They come back, they wanted to tell Jesus what's happening, and so he says to them, come away by yourselves. So you, you 12 disciples, come away. Let's go away, just the 13 of us, to a desolate place and and rest a while. If you've ever been out of town on a trip, you know how that feels, to kind of come home and want to just rest and, and not have to just jump into the next thing that's going on and all the stuff that happens. That's what's going on with these guys. And, and, and Mark tells us that many people were coming and going uh, in their group, and so the disciples and Jesus, they had no time to even eat. They just were like, they just jumped right back in to the daily grind of things. And and so verse 32 says, they went away in a boat, they got in a boat, and they went to the other side of the lake to a desolate place by themselves. So Jesus recognizes when the disciples come back that they are excited, even though they're exhausted, they're excited to tell him all the things that they had done and taught, verse 30 tells us. There's a lot of stuff that was going on. And Mark really leaves that out, but in other uh, accounts of this story, um, Matthew and Luke and John, in other accounts of this story, we, we hear a little bit about the disciples talking about how like they spoke to, to demon-possessed people and the demons listened to them and they fleed and they healed people and they did all of this incredible stuff. And they're so excited to tell Jesus what had happened because this is the very first time that the disciples have been out without Jesus. They've been on their own. Everything that's happened up to this point in Mark 6, verse 7, that has happened with Jesus. Like he's been there guiding them, instructing them. telling. So everything kind of has come through Jesus to them. This is the first time that they're doing these things kind of on their own. And so they're excited to tell Jesus about all that had happened. But when they come back, there's so much commotion. There's so much work. There's so many people crowded around that they just don't even have time to eat. And, and we learn from the text that, that they're hungry. <laughs> I guess dinner time, it's time to eat, we, and, and we're just doing all this stuff, and we can't even take a moment to eat. And if you go back to, to verse 8 in Mark chapter 6, you, what you read there is that Jesus had told them when he sent them on the journey, he told them specifically not to take any bread with them when they left. Now, again, insignificant thing. And if you've ever read that story, you've probably read that, and you're like, That's, I don't understand this. It makes no sense to me why he, how, why he would even say that. But if we keep that in our mind, that in verse 8, Jesus said, don't take any bread. Don't take anything to eat. And then we come down to verse 31 and 32, and we find out that the disciples have returned, and they're hungry. <laughs> they didn't take any bread with them. They're hungry, and yet there's no time to eat. And so we've had food mentioned two times in chapter 6 uh, already. 
Jesus then recognizes the condition of his disciples. He recognizes that they're, they're, they're tired, they're hungry, and, and they just want to, like, they, they're excited to tell him what's going on, but they're just like, oh, man, like, like this is just too much, Jesus. And so Jesus suggests, let's, let's go to a place on our own, a desolate place where we can relax, where we can eat in peace, where we can recharge, and, and then you can tell me what's going on and what happened on, on the journey. Like this absolutely is, is what you do when you're in relationship with somebody. I want to hear about what's been going on in, in your life. Uh, my youngest son, TJ, who lives in, in Emporia, uh, he's approaching, I think September will be one year married, and so we don't see him nearly as often as we, we used to. Um, he just showed up at the house the other night, like 10 o'clock. And it turns out Andrea knew about it, uh, didn't tell me. It was a surprise. So uh, TJ, like there's a notification, there's somebody at your door, it's like 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, what's going on? And it's TJ, oh, TJ. And so we're asking him, we haven't talked to him for a while. We're asking him questions. Uh, how's work going and what's going on with life? And, and you've got this baby on the way and what's happening with that? What are you guys doing for all of that? And so this is what's happening, this relational stuff. Jesus wants to have this time just to hang out with his disciples, to recharge, to listen to their stories about what's going on. And it's a really good idea. Like rest is a really good idea, but it doesn't work the way they expected. Look at the next few verses. When they got ashore, they got in the boat, and they went to the other side of the lake. When they got ashore, there's this great crowd. Like, th this is who we're trying to get away from. And they show up there on the, on the beach, and, and it says, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so as Jesus gets to the boat, he sees this crowd, and he's like, man, I just wanted to relax, but these people need me. And so Jesus gets out of the boat and he begins to teach them just a whole bunch of things. Like, like Jesus isn't phoning it in here. He's tired. He wants to eat like the disciples, but he's like, there's ministry to do. And so um, we're, we're, just gonna, we're just gonna get on with it. So he gets out of the boat and he just immediately begins to teaching the people. And so I want you to think for just a minute about the Jesus' disciples. They've been on this long journey. They had all this stuff. They were tired. They were hungry. They just wanted to hang out and talk with Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says is, hey, I know you're exhausted. Let's get in a boat and let's paddle to the other side of the lake. Oh, man. Okay. At least they knew when they got to the other side of the lake, they were going to be able to ride. Like, there wouldn't be any people. They were just going to get out of the boat, hang out on the shore, have a meal. Everything was going to be Fine, they were just going to relax. Instead, they extend the effort to, to row to the other side of the lake, only to discover when they arrive all the people they were trying to ditch back in the city. Jesus isn't disgusted by the situation like, like normal. Jesus has compassion on the people because he understands that they need spiritual nourishment. And so you have these two things, like the disciples and Jesus need physical nourishment, they need bread, they need to eat, they need to have energy, physical energy, and there's this whole crowd of, of people, this massive crowd of people who need spiritual nourishment that only Jesus can provide. And so Jesus has this understanding when he gets to the other side of the lake, like he looks at it differently. Because he, he knows this is a big deal. For people to have left where they were 
and make the trek all the way around, like halfway around the lake in order to get to where Jesus was when they stopped. Like this is an impromptu thing. And, and Jesus reasoned, like he always did, that if these people just showed up and it wasn't planned, that it was because God had orchestrated the, the opportunity. When Jesus gets to the other side of the lake and he gets off the boat and he sees all the people, he says to himself, God must be involved here. This was not my plan, and so this happened another way. This, this must be God. And so he's going to take that opportunity. And really, throughout Jesus' ministry, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the kind of the biographies about Jesus' life, this thing kind of happened over and over again. What you and I, and, and certainly what the disciples saw as obstacles to doing what we want, Jesus sees as opportunities to do what God wants. That's how he looks at it. That's why he's able to get out of the boat and immediately begin to teach and preach the people because he recognized that God was at work somewhere while the disciples were still sitting on the boat just disgusted by the whole thing. Like, you people weren't even invited. What are you doing here? So Jesus sees as an opportunity to minister, to perform miracles, to mend a broken body or a broken relationship. And, and what we see so often as distractions to our plans the things that we want to accomplish and we want to do, Jesus sees as the deliberate plan of God to bring people to repentance and faith. The things that go awry in our plans, we're often upset by those things. But Jesus always took the time to look around and go, okay, is God at work somewhere? Is God doing something here that, that is only going to happen, like if I step into this, like God's going to bust the doors open. This is a big a big deal. And so Jesus gets out of the boat and he does what he always does. He goes and begins to teach the people who had come. And we're told that there's thousands and, and thousands of, of them. Look at the next few, few verses. When it grew late, then his disciples came to him and, and they said, so they, remember, they're tired and hungry. They go to the other side of the lake. There's all these people. Now they're, they're frustrated. They're upset. They're disgusted by the situation. Uh, I can't believe it. And so it begins to get late in the day. It's getting to be evening. The disciples have just probably, like, I don't even know if they got out of the boat or not. Told. They're just like, oh, I can't believe this. And look at Jesus. He's just out there preaching and teaching. It grew late. His disciples came to him, and they said, this is a desolate place. That's a true statement. The hour is now late. That's a true statement. Send these people away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And so um, Mark, he focuses on Jesus and how Jesus sees these obstacles as really opportunities to minister and to, to get involved in what God is doing. And then we come back to the disciples and we see the disciples sitting there. They're upset. They're unhappy. They just can't wait to send all these people home. And so they find this opportunity. Hey, it's getting late and nobody's broken out the Weber grill to start dinner we got to do something about this. Jesus, you need to send these people away so they can go to the surrounding villages and they can get something, something to eat. And, and so they, they go to Jesus, like they go to Jesus pr proactively, right? They go to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, we recognize that it's getting late. We're in a desolate place. There's food that needs to, to, to be had. And, and so we, we need to we need to get after this. And so um, they come to Jesus proactively with these, 
like real life scenarios. It's late, it's desolate, they have no food. And, and they also come to him practically. They're looking at the very practical situation. You might, you might call them realists in, in this moment. They're like, the, the people need to eat. It's a physical need that they have. And probably in the back of their mind, they're going, like us. Like, we need to eat, Jesus. Send these people away so we can do that. They need to eat. We don't have food here. They need to go. That's the practical way to look at that situation, right? And, and, and really, in any other scenario, in any other scenario except this one, if you were proactive and you were practical in this way, you'd earn a pat on the back. Like somebody's coming to you and going, hey, good job recognizing that there's a need and that we need to address this need and we need to send the people away. They've got to get food. We understand that. Like, good job. Hand clap uh, for you. And maybe that's what the disciples were, were hoping for. I don't know. I think they were just probably hoping to eat and get rid of the crowd. But, but Jesus, like he never just looks at, like at the surface, right? He, he never just looks at the words that we say. He, he, he understands what's going on behind that. What's our motive? What's going on in, in our heart? And, and so in true Jesus fashion, he sees past this proactive and this practical presentation, and, and, and he sees the disciples' heart. And so he tells them something that reveals what is really behind this initiative that they've taken. Here's what he says. You give them something to eat. Now just put yourself in the disciples' feet for a minute. You're tired and hungry. You've been on a journey. You just want to sit down and talk to Jesus about all this exciting stuff that happened and all the stuff you were able to do through the power that he'd given you. And, and, and he makes you row this boat across the lake. You're tired and hungry still, and you get there, and you can't do what you want to because there's this crowd of people. And now it's evening, and you're like, oh, we're never going to be able to eat. We're never going to be able to spend time um, with Jesus. And they're frustrated, and they think, hey, Hey, if, if, if we can take advantage of the fact that it's late and there's no food, maybe we can eat, maybe we can have time with Jesus, and instead they get met, met with you. You 12, you give them something to eat. Look, look how they respond. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, a, a, a denarii was a, a coin, and a skilled worker would earn one of these denarii a day, one a day. So are we going to take 200 days worth of wages and spend it on food for them to eat? And you, you read this in, in the story, and um, like this kind of shocking <laughs> that Jesus would say this to them. You give them something to eat. Like it's, it's almost... <laughs> It's almost like a slap in the face to the disciples. Like, I know you're tired. I, I know you're hungry. I know you just want to hang out and talk and share with me what's going on. Uh, nope. You, you give them something to, to eat. And, and we kind of, like, when I read that, I'm kind of like, oh, man, if Jesus said that to me, I think I'd be like, whoa, wait a minute. Um, but, but what you realize if you spend some time and look at it is that the shocking thing is not that Jesus commands them to feed the crowd. The shocking thing um, really is the way that they respond um, to this protectively. 
protectively. Look, I'm going to fill in a little bit here. I'm going to take a little bit of license with the text because I think there's some things lost in the translation, some things that we don't really catch when we read the the text. And so um, I think what the disciples are kind of saying and and what Mark maybe could have said if it was in today's language is is something like this. Jesus, we're exhausted. (laughs) And you want us to find food. You want us to go into the countryside. We're tired, we're hungry. You want us to go and, and find food for these people. And you want us to spend our 200 denarii to buy food for these people who just showed up without an invitation. We're the ones. We're the ones who should be getting food. We're the ones who should be able to sit down while other people go get us. Like, you don't know what we just did on this journey that you sent us to. We're the ones who should be getting food instead of going and getting the the food. But think about what the disciples didn't say. Because I think what they don't say is just as telling as what they, what they do say. Because what they don't say is, Jesus, we don't have that much money. It would, it would take 200 days wages to feed all these people. We don't have it. They don't say that. They tell Jesus exactly how much they think it will cost, and they don't want to give it up. They don't say, Jesus, look, Uh, we don't know how to accomplish this task. Is there a way to provide for this crowd to eat that we haven't thought of yet? They don't say that. They don't go to the guy who they've seen do all of these things and say, is there something we haven't thought of yet? Like, is there something bigger going on here that we haven't figured out? They don't say, Jesus, we've seen you walk on water and heal the sick and bring the dead back to life. Will you show us how to provide food? for this crowd of people. They don't say any, any of that. They say, Jesus, it's gonna take 200 denarii. Do you really want us to go and spend that much money on this, on this crowd? And the disciples are kind of shocked at Jesus' command. Again, not because they don't have the money, not because they don't have enough money to, to, to go and buy the bread from the surrounding villages. I think they're shocked by Jesus' command because they're the ones who are tired and and hungry. Jesus, we're your disciples. We're your closest friends. We just returned from teaching and and healing. We're the ones who are tired and, and hungry. You asked us to go and do this, and then we came back and we want to tell you about it, and you make us row across the lake, and And like, we're just exhausted. Like, these these people, this crowd of people who you don't know, these are the people who should be going to the surrounding villages and getting food and bringing it to us. Because we're your disciples. We're the ones doing what you want us to do. They should be providing for us, not us for them. I think the disciples had the money, but they lacked the motivation, and the compassion of Jesus to do anything about it. I want to go back to um, earlier in the chapter just for a moment, verses 8 and 9, where Jesus sends his disciples out. Here's what he, he says. When he sent them out, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, 
just sandals and only one tunic. So when, when Jesus sends them out two by two to go preach and teach and, and, and heal people and cast out demons, they had the sandal on their, sandals on their feet, they had a staff in their hand and the shirt on their back. Literally, that's all they had. No food, no bag, no money. They had only enough and they had no more. And yet on their journey, the, the understanding from the text is that on their journey, their every need was met and provided for. When they were hungry, there was food. When they needed clothing, it was provided for them. If they needed a little money to meet their need for, so, uh, uh, for something, they, they had it. They, they had enough, but they didn't come back with too much. Like, I think that's the reason Jesus says don't take a bag. He says don't take anything that you can carry back more than you left within. Don't take more so that you expect that people are going to give you stuff and you're going to be able to fill up your bag and bring back more than you had. You're going to just have enough, but I'm going to provide for you every step of the way. Every need that you have, I'm going to meet it, but I'm only going to meet it when you need it. Ooh, that was good. I'm going to have to tweet that out somewhere. Do, do you see what Jesus is trying to do with the disciples? He wants, he wants them to learn to trust him, to trust this God who loves them and wants to provide for them and take care of them. And if they have everything they need, if they have all their stuff in this bag and they piled it up real big and they took off on their journey, they wouldn't need God. The reason Jesus sent them out with any of that extra stuff was so that they would have to learn to trust him. That's what they were supposed to learn. Anyway, they were supposed to learn to trust God to provide, but in this moment, in this moment, they fail the test. They fail the test. And maybe because all they could see was their need in, in the moment. Maybe because they were tired, they were hungry, they didn't know what was going on, they didn't recognize that God was doing something there. Maybe it was because they didn't all they could see was their need. Maybe, maybe because they thought they deserved more than they were getting. Jesus, we just came back from this journey. We did all this stuff you wanted to do, and now you're asking us to do more. Now we have to take care of this crowd. Now you want us to provide food for all these people? Like, like when's it enough, Jesus? When do we just get to sit back and put our feet up and have people bring stuff to us, Whatever the reason, their focus was clearly on self and not service or sacrifice. They were thinking about themselves, what they needed, what they wanted. They were tired. We don't want to go on. So Jesus continues, Mark chapter 6, verse 38. You kind of, you kind of just, I don't know, you got to read this into the text, but you kind of, like Jesus just like, here we go again. Okay, guys, how many loaves do you have? Go, go and see. Go and see. Go and find. How many loaves? Like, what do, what do you have? He's like, this is like okay, okay. What do, you, what do you have? And so they go and they find five loaves of bread and, and, and two fish. Now, the, again, the text doesn't say this. I'm just going to throw out my opinion. 
We, we know based on verse 32 that the disciples were, were hungry. <laughs> they hadn't been able to eat. There wasn't enough time to eat. And then, and then we find in the text that they're proactive and they're practical in their concerns, but it was really about food. <laughs> it's late. They don't have anything to eat. Send them away so they can eat. But over and over we see this, like, eat, eat, eat. I suspect that disciples, the disciples not only had enough money in their bag to buy the food to feed the whole crowd, I think they probably brought food enough for themselves. I mean, think about it. They just come back from this journey. They wanted to sit down with Jesus and hang out and tell him about what had happened. If you or I were in their shoes, we'd run through McDonald's. Well, if we were Kevin. We'd run through McDonald's, and we'd get something to eat, and we'd go to Jesus, and we'd sit down, and we'd go, hey, Jesus, I got the Big Macs, the fries, the Diet Coke. Like, let's, let's talk about stuff. I, I think somebody probably had some food. And they expected when they got in the boat, because they were going to, remember, a desolate place. There was no fast food in that area. Whatever they were going to eat, they were going to have to bring with them. I think it's very likely that they had enough food for themselves because they were hungry before they left town and sailed away. It makes sense to me that someone grabbed something to eat. Maybe not. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but it seems rational, especially when we see what happens at the end of the, of the story. Just keep that in your mind. But when Jesus asked, how much do you have? If they have food, they don't give it to him. If they brought food, they don't give it to Jesus. In fact, if you go and read John's account of this story, that John's account says that they found a boy, a young boy, that had these five loaves and two fish. Now, you're going to tell me, just think about this. You're going to tell me that in a culture where the vast majority of people only ate one time a day, and they ate in the evening. They had an evening meal, and that was the only meal they had. In a group of 5,000 men, and most people who read that see that there would have been at least probably 10,000, maybe more people. You're going to tell me that a group of people who eat one time of day in the evening, and there's 10,000 or more people, that the only food they can find is from a boy who has five loaves and two fish? Come on, man. There's no way. I guarantee you there had to be more food. And I suspect the disciples probably had some tucked in their, in their tunic. I think it's highly likely that we could say it um, this way. The only one found willing to share was a boy who had five loaves and two fish. I suspect there were other people. And they realized that they didn't have enough. Like my mom used to always say, can I have a piece of gum? Well, I don't have enough for everybody in line or everybody in the world, so you can't have a piece of gum. Only I can have a piece of gum. I don't have enough for everybody, so I can't give anybody. I think they found one boy who said, I'll share my food with Jesus. And if you don't know the rest of the story, Jesus takes this small meal and he prays a blessing over it and then the disciples he calls the disciples who are tired and hungry remember still they're upset about this whole exchange 
And he calls them and says, I want you to do one more thing. I want you to take these food and these baskets, and I want you to begin to pass it out to all the people, 10,000-plus people on the hillside, and I want you to start handing the food out. And there was enough food, the text says, for everybody to eat their fill. And at the end, when everybody had eaten as much as they wanted, the boy and all the people sitting down, they collected 12 baskets full of bread and fish left over. Now, question time, see if you're paying attention. How many disciples were there? 12, right. I won't ask you to name them, but there were 12 until Judas. There were 12. Uh, What were the disciples anxious about on this day more than anything else? Food. And what happens at the end of the story? Each of those disciples is standing before Jesus with a basket full of bread and fish. Way more than they could eat. Jesus um, found a way to reveal the protective heartitude. I made that up, by the way. Found a way to reveal the protective heartitude of the disciples and to provide for their need as they provided for the needs of others. Isn't that amazing how God worked that out? They were hungry, they were tired, but Jesus gave them food. And they passed that food around, probably frustrated. How in the world is this going to feed everybody? And yet when they collected the leftovers, each of them had a full basket just for them. This whole story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men plus all the other people who were there, this whole story is about how Jesus responds to people relationally. It's that, it's that word right back there that you can't see. Easton mentioned it, prioritizing people. It's about how Jesus prioritizes people. He had compassion on those that he knew needed him. And then he lovingly corrected his disciples who had become more focused inward, more focused on themselves than on others. We're about to move into a new building. A new building that, by the way, is going to need a lot of work, but that is also going to provide a place for a lot of people to find real life in Jesus. And there's some lessons, I think, for us in this story of the feeding of the 5,000. I think the first lesson is this. Don't try and hide a protective heart behind a facade of being proactive or practical. Don't try and hide a protective heart that says, man, if I give up what I have, I'm not going to have enough. That was the disciples. That's what they did. The second lesson is that God can always provide what we need when we're willing to part with what we have. And if you think about that in in reverse, if I'm not willing to part with what I have, then maybe Jesus isn't going to be motivated to give me what I need or what I think I need. You think about the little boy willing to give up his food, not knowing if he was going to get it back, 
willing to give up his food so that his whole crowd could eat. I think the other lesson we learn is that loving God and others is the pinnacle of looking like Jesus. And loving and protecting self is the opposite of that. As we move into our new building, we will need more of what we have or, 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 or maybe more than what we've been willing to give up to this point. We'll need more people serving. We'll need more people serving on our welcome team. We'll more, need more people serving in the kitchen. We'll, we'll need more people on our tech team. We'll especially need more people in our kids' ministry. Now, it may not happen right away, but because the kids are going to be in their own wing at the new building, <laughs> we're not going to hear them every Sunday morning. It's a little bit sad, if I'm honest, you know. I, I like knowing that we have children in church. It's good. It means the next generation is coming. That's exciting. But they're going to have their own space just for them. And so if you have kids, we're going to check them in at the beginning of service. And they are going to be in there, and we're going to come in and have worship. It'll take a little bit of getting used to, but I think you're going to find it's going to be much better, and they're going to build greater relationships. Amber and her team of volunteers are going to have more time to build relationship with the kids. They are not going to miss out on worship. I know that's the big thing. People are like, I like having my kids in worship. I like having the kids in worship. I like seeing them dance around. Little AV girls are always up here dancing, dancing around. I, I like to see that. And so what we're going to do, the first three songs that we do on, on Sunday, we're going to pipe that in video into the kids' space. And so the kids are going to be worshiping with us while we're worshiping the same songs, the same thing that's happening. They'll be participating in that in their own space just, just for them. We're going to need more people serving in our kids' ministry. And I, I, I know that, that sometimes the feeling is, like, I don't want to miss out. On, on the service. I don't want to miss out on the music. I don't want to miss out on the, the message. I don't want to miss out on seeing somebody that I only really see on Sunday, on Sunday mornings. And if I serve in some area, if I serve in the kids' ministry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss out. Well, I, I want you to think about something just for a second. Um, if there are only a few people who serve in different areas within the church, then those few people have to serve more often in those areas in order for the rest of us to come in here and sit and listen to the music and the message, to enjoy some peace and quiet sometimes, to enjoy not having our children with us for just a, an hour or so. And so if fewer people serve, then those fewer people who serve have to serve more often. And so they miss out more often on, what's, on the, other, the things that we all enjoy being a part of. But if more people served, then the people who served wouldn't have to serve as often, and so it would be a farther time in between having to serve, which means you get to participate a lot longer, and so does everybody else in the things that you really like. If we have more people helping our kids learn about Jesus on their level, then everybody who served would serve less often. And the more people who serve in any area within the church frees up others to not have to serve as often as, as well. 
And, it, and it's not just about serving in the different areas of, of church. Like, we're going to have multiple entrances when we get to the new building, and especially when you see the new entrance that we're planning. It's going to be awesome. Uh, you'll see that next week, by the way. Uh, that's going to be exciting. That means we're going to meet more, more people at the doors. We, we might need people out in the parking lot helping folks find a place to, to park and find out where to go, what entrance to go to to drop your kids off and all of that um, kind of stuff. But it's not just serving. The disciples had the money to meet the need to feed all of those people. They just didn't trust God to meet their need if they gave it up. We're going to have opportunity to serve, and we're going to have opportunity to give more than we think we can as we move into our new building. But I'm confident that God will provide what we need if we're willing to part with what we have. And, and so um, as we wrap up this last service in the Civic Center, I'm excited to take this journey and the next step with you. So... Um, Here's to almost exactly 11 years of setting up and tearing down in this Civic Center. This building has served us well. Many of you in the building right now came to faith and were baptized right over there. It's been a good space. It's been used by God in, in lots of ways, in conversations out in the lobby, and in kids learning about Jesus and wanting to give their lives to him in the kids' ministry area. And the, the grace and the patience of all of you who sit on the side closest to the children. <laughs> and all the folks who come and, and serve and work in the morning to make sure that you have a place to come and listen to the message with, without some of the distractions of things not working and all the cords being run. But it's time to move on. And it's time to stretch ourselves and to see God work in more ways than we can imagine. So as we take this next step over the next couple weeks, let's continue to look a little more like Jesus every day by being real with ourselves and others about our situation, about what we have and about our trust in, in God, by being relevant to the culture around us without being consumed by it and by being relational loving others and loving each other just like Jesus and I think what you're going to see next Sunday uh, at around noon when we at the at the new building we share with you the the floor plan and the and the renderings of the of the new building what you're going to see is these three core values played out in the areas of the church we're, we're real about our situation like there are no chandeliers <laughs> going to be hanging in that building it's going to take money to do the things that we that we want to do but but we've been very real in doing it like like there just are things that we've said we don't need that the other thing is, it says, um, to be real, it says to put away the masks. We're not going to pretend to be fancy church people. We're going to have a building, um, but, but it's, it's, it's not going to be the crystal cathedral. <laughs> um, you're going to find out when you see those pictures that, that we've been intentional about being relevant to the culture 
And so the building is going to look pretty modern in, in terms of how it looks and how it's laid out. But, but what you're going to also see is, is the last section. And, and I think as you see the, the rendering of what we hope at, at one day, at one time, God willing, that the parking lot and the front of the building look like, you're absolutely going to see that word right there. Our new building is going to scream relationships. From the very first moment somebody drives by and looks at it, they're going to say, that's a church where people matter. They're prioritizing people. And I'm excited to share that with you. Let's pray. God, thanks for all that you have done in this place. For every person who's walked through the doors, for every life that has been touched and changed and transformed. For each and every one of us for the time that we've been able to spend here. And and God, if if we're honest, we're a little frustrated with the way things worked out over this last year, and yet we see your hand in it all. And so we thank you that even amid uh, COVID a few years ago and throughout the last 11 years, the, the city has even been willing to allow us to come and to meet here. And outside of a few minor things, it's been a good relationship. So we thank you for your faithfulness in all of that. And we continue to look forward to what you're going to do as we trust you in the next step, the next phase, the next season of ministry for this church. We pray right now that that more and more people, even though real life won't be meeting in this space, that more and more people in El Dorado will come to know your son Jesus personally and that their lives will be transformed and changed forever because of it. We pray for the people in the community of Haverhill, Augusta, and Leon, and Douglas, who, who, who may not have driven to El Dorado, but may drive to that corner to hear about Jesus and to hang around people who genuinely love them and care about them. I pray, Father, that that we continue to look a little bit more like your son Jesus by being real, by being relevant to the culture and being relational in everything that we do. And and we just thank you, God, because we know that every step you're gonna take with us. So as we wrap up this time and we move into the next time, Father, we do it with faith We do it with hope into all that you're going to accomplish through us. And God, we trust you to see us through to the next step. In Jesus' name.